0: I could entitle this message, Crave, or Cravings, I decided that I would, in light of the passage of Scripture, try to think of something light to start with. So, I decided that I would search up the strangest things craved by pregnant ladies. Hey, why not, right? So, I went to BuzzFeed, because that's the only time I'd ever go to that place for articles. But anyway… They did have um, a few interesting cravings by pregnant ladies. I want to read five of them. You may find them weird. I found them weird. I'll be honest with you. But they were cravings nonetheless. Apparently, this was an article written based on a forum where they invited women to write in what their cravings were. So, apparently, these are actually ones that belong to real people. Number one, dish soap on a cheeseburger there's one crazy craving number two how about cream filled donuts stuffed with white cheddar cheese popcorn you could try to throw that at Tim Hortons and see if they'll make that might be a limited clientele you never know but number three sardines on Ritz crackers that's not odd though you're thinking some of you are thinking that's not bad I don't mind that i got a brother that puts capers on crackers. I think he's weird, but anyway, I won't name his name. But this one is sardines on Rick's crackers with blueberries. I think that's kind of odd. How about this one, pulled pork on vanilla ice cream? You ever crave that? Or last one, a kosher dill pickle stuffed with grape jelly. So those are some weird cravings. Yeah, i 'm not necessarily suggesting that we um, want those, but this particular passage of scripture does talk about something that we are to crave, and it 's not this stuff, so that's good something a little bit uh, more uh, helpful, a lot more helpful, and definitely more beneficial and so we'll get to that, but I want us to look at first peter chapter two we 're going to look at verses one through ten um, Levi was preaching last week, and I'll refer back to something that he said. I, I'm also going to refer to a passage that we, in essence, have skipped over, but we're not really going to because we're going to get to it to, today uh, as we work through this passage. But we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, before I get there, I do have to say that as we work through 1 Peter, it's going to be essential that I constantly bring you back to remembrance to things that we've talked about before. And here's why. Because 1 Peter is a really terrible book for what it does in its format. Now, it's not really a terrible book, but it's difficult for us because this is why. Peter does some teaching and then he points us to Christ and then he does some teaching which harkens back to the last teaching and then he points us to Christ and then he teaches some more which harkens back to the last couple things that he's talked about that points us to Christ and so on and so forth. So it's, it's hard to kind of just learn something from Peter and settle there and then move on to the next thing that Peter is teaching because he doesn't do it that way. And so we kind of have to just kind of keep on harkening back and just by, as we get a grasp of something, he's already building onto it with something else that we're going back to. And so we're going to have to do that a little bit, and Lord willing, um, by the time we're done, First Peter, you have a good understanding and appreciation, and God has used it in its entirety for us. But it's really going to be hard to take a snapshot from one message and just say, I'm going to hang my hat on that for First Peter, because really we're going to need the whole book to really get the best picture of what Peter's trying to teach these believers. So what we know is that these are believers that have been exiled. They're not really been exiled. They're immigrants to a particular region in Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and all that. They're believers in Jesus Christ, which automatically alienates them from the unsaved communities that they find themselves in. And because they're new immigrants to these areas, they're being resented by the indigenous people, which also opens them up to being ostracized and persecuted. And so Peter is going to teach them things, but he's also reminding them of what they are or who they are and what they have in Christ as a, by way of encouragement in the midst of their suffering. Okay, and um, no different when we get into 1 Peter chapter 2. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll start working our way through the passage. It says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by the people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So, honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected has become its cornerstone. And the, and the stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." So this is a passage of Scripture that we're going to be working through. It's going to actually draw our attention back to the passage just before it, and we'll get into that in just a second. But what I want us to see is this. In this passage, Peter instructs, commands, puts an imperative out there for the believers to crave something, to have an earnest desire for something, and we're going to get into that. It is the actual only imperative in this particular passage. You might not think so. You might say, but Dave, didn't you pay attention to your copy of scriptures because it starts off with an imperative right off the bat. And I will argue that that's actually not probably the way it should be rendered in our English translation. The imperative is kind of implied based on the command that comes a little bit later. There are commands that have already been given to these believers, however, and I want us to just be reminded of them right off the bat. Because again, trying to hearken ourselves back to the first part of the book so that we can better understand where we are in the book right now. In this letter, Peter has already said to the believers in chapter one, verse thirteen, this command, set your hope on fully on the grace of God. So in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their experiences, as things sometimes can look bleak, as they're being ostracized and alienated, suffering some persecution by their community. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Don't set your hope on what you're experiencing here. Don't set your hope on what your community can do for you, what your government can do for you. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can, no, that's a different speech altogether. He's saying, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Command number one, chapter one, verse 13. Command number two, we talked about it last week. Levi preached on it. Be holy for I am holy these believers, and us as well, because this application applies to us. This passage applies to us. We are commanded to be holy, set apart from sin, set apart to God with our entire lives. That was chapter 1, verse 15. The third command we actually haven't touched on, and so we're going to touch on it now. It comes in chapter 1, verse 22, where we are commanded as believers. These believers were commanded as believers to love one another constantly. In chapter 1, verse 22, it says this, Since you have, been, you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere, brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. There's the command. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be loving one another constantly. Jesus actually told his disciples, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Love for the brothers is a telltale mark that we are true believers in Jesus Christ. If you want to get a better grasp of what this love looks like, I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 13. It is not just a section that 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 we read for marriages, although it's a great passage to read at a wedding ceremony, it talks about what godly love looks like. Keeps no records of wrongs. It's no, not boastful. It's not proud. It doesn't puff itself up. It's not arrogant, right? Love endures all things. It hopes all things. It believes all things. That's what love looks like. And we as believers are commanded to love one another constantly. I would argue that we, wouldn't, we won't be able to do that effectively, if we don't fully grasp and understand and appreciate and run after the fourth command that Peter gives in the letter 1 Peter. And we see it in this passage. And it is the command in verse 2 of chapter 2, crave the pure spiritual milk. Look at what it says here. I'm going to start again in verse 1, because you're going to say, but Dave, this looks like a command. And I'm going to say, Yes, it does, but it's really connected to the real command. He says this, Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word. Now, you heard me say, desire the pure spiritual milk. That's actually the better phrase in our English language. My English translation translates it as many do, The pure milk of the word. The problem is is that the word logos, which is our word for word, is actually not the word in that phrase. It's really the word for almost like what we would get logic from, but it's really more than that. And so what ends up happening is we look at it and say, well, I need to crave time in God's word. That's the pure milk, the pure milk of the word. And I would say that's part of it. But I would argue that's not all of it. So I want us to see it. Peter says, like newborn infants, desire the pure, true milk, the the pure spiritual milk. Well, we can understand this picture. We know that a newborn babe, an, an infant, not just desires, absolutely needs their mother's milk needs that for nourishment, for sustenance, for growth, for thriving. This child is not going to grow and thrive and be healthy without their mother's milk. We know that, we, we understand that. And what Peter's doing is he's taking something that we understand, and in fact, in Peter's day, it was actually even more robust than that. They believed at the time, it was kind of a Greco-Roman thing, that in fact, if the mother was honorable, upright, righteous, godly, moral, that through their milk the child would be moral and upright and honest and righteous. And we think, oh, that's kind of that's weird. Okay. But that, that was their thinking. That to the point where if a mother couldn't breastfeed their child and they had to get a wet nurse, they were very keen on finding the right wet nurse to, to, to nurse that child one of high moral character and so on. And so, as that was the thinking in the day, Peter latches a hold of that and starts bringing a spiritual principle out of this that we as followers of Jesus Christ need to crave, we need to, as Schreiner puts it, ardently desire to have God as much exposure and communion with God as we possibly can. Carson and Beale put it this way, to have the sustaining life of God in our lives. To crave the spiritual nourishment that comes from God. Not just his word, but more than that. Now before I get to that, I want to talk about what it is that Peter's not saying. Because for those of us that maybe know Scripture or have heard, some, heard Scripture, taught, and we've been exposed to preaching from 1 Corinthians, our thinking is this. Wait a second. Is Peter saying that these believers are immature believers? Because Paul, when talking to the Corinthian church, talked to them about having to feed the milk from the Word. This is actually what he said in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, he says, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you're still worldly. That's what what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, look, You are believers in Jesus Christ, but you are such immature believers that I can't give you deep things from scripture. I can't teach you that, you can't handle it. The best I can do is teach you the basics from God's word because you're still immature believers. That was not a compliment. If any of us find ourselves here today, having been saved for a a long period of time and yet we still can't handle the solid food, That tells us that we're immature believers. That is not a good thing. We're supposed to be maturing believers. This is actually what Peter is talking about. The Corinthian church were immature believers. They couldn't handle the solid food from God's word. They had to be fed the basics. Peter is not talking about that, though. Peter's not calling these believers immature believers because he's not using the milk of the word the same way that Paul's using the the idea of the milk of the word. Peter's talking about the fact that it's communion with God, intimate communion with God that is necessary for our flourishing, our nourishment, our growth our walks with God. In order for us to actually be the holy nation that we're called to be, in order for us to love constantly the way that we're called to love, we need to be communing with God. We need to be in his word. So part of it is getting into God's word regularly, but not just reading it, but studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it, taking time after we're done reading scripture for the day to just spend time marinating in it. I think the most of the time the only time we actually think of the word marinate is when we're marinating a piece of meat. But it's the right idea. When you really want to marinate a piece of meat, what do you do? You let it sit in those that sauce, that mixture for hours and hours and it's soaking it up and it's tenderizing it and it's getting it ready. That's the idea of marinating on scripture. Meditating on scripture. I'm taking what I've read and I'm thinking about it and I'm chewing on it. I'm mulling it over. I'm letting the Holy Spirit take God's word to tenderize me, to get me ready for whatever it is that he wants me to do. But it's not just scripture, it's prayer. Intimate times with God in prayer. Maybe that means that in our hustle and bustle, we shut the the radio off on, on our car while we're driving into work and we spend that time just praying with God. Just communing with God, just pouring our hearts out to God, seeking his face, asking him questions, anticipating what God's going to reveal to us through his word, through interactions with other believers, through circumstances. Prayer. It's not just scripture. It's not just prayer. What about praise? Right? We commune with God in the times of praise and worship. Right? As we are singing songs today, We were singing, I owe it all to you. Are we really thinking about what it is that we're saying when we say, God, I owe it all to you? Do I really mean that? Am I really thinking about that? Do I think of the scripture that's connected with that? Do I really grasp the fact that that everything I have from the breath in my lungs to the strength in my bones to the physical blessings that I have and the amenities that I have around me, I owe it all to God. My salvation, I owe it all to God. And when I'm singing that, am I really drawing close to the Lord in my times of praise? How about service? As I serve God, using the gifts that God has given to me, what am I doing? I'm communing with God. I'm getting to know God better. I'm, why? Because I'm using what God has called me to, to use for His service, for His honor, for His glory. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for Him. Lastly, fellowship with other believers. We can be so blessed and encouraged and built up when we're fellowshipping with other believers. Talking about what God's doing in our lives, hearing what God's doing in their lives, challenging each other, maybe sometimes even having to keep each other accountable, coming alongside somebody and saying, look, in love, I just noticed that, you know, some of the things that you said, you and I both know that's, that's not glorifying to God. And I pray for you so that you're stronger in what you say. Or whatever it might be. Hey, you know, you you have somebody come alongside and say, look, I I know you're wrestling with this sin. Let me pray for you. Let me support you. Let me encourage you from Scripture on how you can be free from that sin, how you don't have to follow that. This is the idea of craving the pure spiritual milk. Do we ardently desire to get to know God better every single day in all these different areas? Are we too busy going about our normal routines that God becomes an afterthought, a second thought, no thought? As Christians, we're commanded to crave the pure spiritual milk. See, I like the way that Jobs puts it in her commentary. That whole passage that I read, those first few verses really could be or maybe even should be rendered this way, crave the true pure milk as newborn babies so that you might grow up into your salvation by putting off all malice, all deceit and hypocrisies and jealousies and all slander so that you, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, if I'm craving the pure spiritual milk, if I'm communing with God and I'm growing in grace and I'm getting to know God better and he's doing a work in my life through all these different areas, scripture and prayer and fellowship and praise, then I'm going to be getting rid out of my life all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and so on and so on. As I'm getting to know God better and communing with him and he's doing a work in my heart and my life and my mind, you know what? I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And the problem is is that Christians get this leveled against them so often because to some extent, it's actually a legitimate criticism of believers. We say we believe certain things, but when people observe us in our lives, they say, but hold on, you're not living out what you believe. And it's amazing how unsaved people, non-Christian people, grasp really quickly what Christians are supposed to be living like in light of what Christians say they believe. And yet all too often as Christians, we don't seem to see that. I don't know how many times, and I know that sometimes it's an excuse. I get it. Sometimes people just use it as an excuse not to respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But I've had plenty of times when people have come up and said, look, I know so-and-so. They claim to be a Christian, and they don't live anything like what a Christian lives like. You know what? If that's what Christianity is all about, I'm not interested. Now, you could say, look, that's just an argument. That's just an excuse. That's just a reason for them not to respond to the truth. Maybe. But it doesn't mean that that excuse is invalid in the sense that they have observed someone who claims to know and believe and follow Jesus Christ, and yet their life doesn't back it up. But if I'm craving the pure spiritual milk and I'm getting to know God better and more intimately every single day, then God's going to be working on these areas in my life, and he's going to bring hypocrisy up in my life, and I'm going to confess that as sin before God, and I'm going to strive to live the way that God's called me to live, to be the best witness for Jesus I can be. He's going to help us rid ourselves of malice and deceit we should be the most honest people out there we should be the ones pursuing the truth speaking the truth preaching the truth standing up for the truth when a world tells us that human life is invaluable it means nothing we stand up and say no absolutely it does because god created all people what about malice some of us may not even think that we have malice in our hearts i for a long time didn't really think i struggled with that and then God really convicted me this week. I was thinking about a conversation that I had to have with somebody. And I, and I can't speak for you, but maybe you've wrestled with this, right? You, you know you're going to have a conversation with somebody, and you start getting ready for that conversation in your mind. And you've all, you've, you begin to concoct the, the, the responses by that person, and your response to them. And you already have an idea where this conversation is going, and you never once even have the talk with the person yet but you've got it all shaped out in your mind. I did. I, I was doing this this week. This person's going to say this, and I'm going to respond this way, and I'm going to, yeah, yeah. You know what God brought to light in my own heart, though, in the midst of all of that? Was that my thinking, my responses that I was concocting in my mind, their responses to me were based on malice. Malice is ill will, Thinking, having ill will towards somebody. And I got thinking, you know what? I'm actually thinking the worst of this person, not the best of this person. I'm assuming in my mind, in this con- trumped up conversation, that they're going to respond a certain way. And funny is, funny thing was, is that their response was all negative. I was thinking the absolute worst of them. And God started convicting me of of that sin, that I was thinking ill will of that person. I wasn't thinking of the best of them. I wasn't assuming the best of them. As I should have expected that as a believer, they were going to respond graciously and gently and lovingly, but that's not the way I was thinking about them. And I want you to think about that for a second. If you've concocted this conversation in your mind, and if you're like me, and hopefully you're not, but if you have thought of the negative responses that you're going to get the 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 negative pushback that you're going to get from them it's kind of hard to love them before you even have that conversation eh? it totally demolishes the christian community that should be there before i ever have that conversation with that individual and god convicted me of my malice my ill will and i had to confess that before god Because I wasn't thinking the best of that person. I was thinking the worst of that person. And it was impacting my love for them. See, as we get to know God more intimately in every facet of life, we desire that pure spiritual milk. God begins to show us, hey, this is an area in your life you need to get rid of that. That's sin. That's impacting the love that you have for the brethren. And as we as Christians live in a society where we're going to become more and more ostracized, we're going to become more and more excluded, we're going to experience more and more pushback and maybe even suffering and persecution, you know what? We need all the more a loving Christian community that we can run to for support and help and encouragement. We ought to be building one another up, not tearing one another down because it's only going to get more difficult as believers in this life for each and every one of us. Peter's calling the believers to desire the pure spiritual milk. He says this. He says, as you come to him, he says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, I just want, I'm not going to get into it uh, for sake of time, but if you you look at it, it's going to hearken back to Psalm 34 where David says that he cried out to the Lord and the Lord delivered him. and that that God brought him out of his troubles, and he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. David knew what it was like to taste and see that the Lord was good. The Lord was good to him over and over and over again, and Peter's hearkening us back to that passage and saying, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He doesn't use the word see in Peter because he's kind of keeping with his analogy about newborn babes and milk. But he's saying, look, you as believers, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, if you know, you know that God is good. God is good, he's got a good name, he's got good mercy, his laws are good, all of it's good. And he said, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And he said, as you come to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the cornerstone, the one who is the foundation of our faith, the one that we are built upon. And he's building us up into a royal priesthood, a spiritual house, why, so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Our lives are to be a spiritual sacrifice to God. Everything that we do, every thing that we think, everything that we say, our whole lives are meant to be honoring and glorifying to God. that our lives, as we live them out, are a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That's what our lives are supposed to look like, look like. Not a life that stinks. And he reminds these believers as they are being built up into a royal priesthood, a spiritual house, that they are built on the foundation stone, Jesus Christ. And he says this, he quotes Isaiah 26:16. See, I lay a, found, a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. We have received honor from God, those of us that have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our cornerstone, our foundation stone for our life. But this is what he says as he quotes Psalm 118, and then, Psalm, and then Isaiah 8, he says, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They are destined for this. What we need to understand is this. When it comes to Jesus Christ, there are only two options on how we deal with Jesus. We are either going to, when we hear about Jesus and the work of him on the cross of Calvary, his shedding of blood, his death, burial, and resurrection, demonstrating his victory over sin and death and hell, the fact that Jesus is God the Son. We're either going to believe in him for salvation and recognize him as the Lord of our lives and live for him all of our days, or we're going to reject him. There is no middle ground. You can't be moderately accepting of Jesus. It's not possible. Why? Because there are some people that will come out there and try to say, well, Jesus was a good teacher. So we can emulate him because he was a good teacher. No, he wasn't. In this sense, If you're not willing to recognize him as Jesus, as Lord, as God, the son who died on the cross to save people from their sin, the only sinless, spotless lamb of God, who he claimed to be, if you don't recognize that and say, no, that's not really true, then that means that Jesus is a liar because he claimed to be God. And if you say, I don't believe that Jesus is God, then you can't say he's a good moral teacher. Because what he told you, what in, in, in his word, what he teaches is, I am God the Son who has come to save people from their sin. Now, I don't really believe that. I just believe he was a good teacher. Well, then you can't believe he was a good teacher because you don't recognize what he taught. He's either honest and true in what he said, or he's not. And so if he's lying, then that means he's not a good teacher. C.S. Lewis went into great lengths to talk about this. And as C.S. Lewis was thinking about this, God used this to bring him to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because either Jesus is Lord and Savior, or he's not. There's only one of two options for you. And so we're either going to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, or he's going to become a stumbling block to us, and we will reject him. Here's the thing. When we put our faith and trust in jesus christ scripture tells us that honor comes to us that we will never be put to shame that we have a living hope that we have an inheritance in heaven with god forever because jesus christ died on the cross of calvary for us and i've trusted that i've accepted that i'm resting in the the saving work of jesus or i'm going to reject jesus but here's the thing if i reject jesus if i disobey his word then I'm destined for eternal punishment in hell. That's what Scripture tells us. There's only one of two options. I can't be moderately inclined towards Jesus. I either accept him or reject him. Jesus said to his disciples and those that were standing around, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no other option. So, if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, You can't be moderately inclined towards Jesus. You're either going to accept what Scripture teaches, that you're a sinner before God and that Jesus Christ came and died to save you from that sin and to give you life in Him and that you can trust Him with your salvation and follow Him all the days of your life because He's the Lord of your life, or you can reject Him Our hearts would break if you rejected them because that means that you would go to hell and that you would be separated from God from all eternity and you would not experience eternal life the way that God wants you to experience it. I would urge you to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord today. Let Him be the cornerstone of your life. Peter sums up this passage by encouraging the believers, by saying this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's hearkening their, idea, their, their thoughts back to Isaiah 43, 20 and 21 and Exodus nineteen five and 6. They're a chosen race, meaning really not that they're Jewish people because there would have been Jews and Gentile believers here, that really they're believers in Jesus Christ. Really, in, in essence, a kind of a new race, a chosen race by God a royal priesthood, as we've talked about, meant to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God, a holy nation, a nation set apart from sin for God to impact a world around them, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who has called called you out of darkness, out of sin and into light, his glorious light. He finishes up by bringing them back to really, the book of Hosea where he says, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I would encourage you to read the book of Hosea if you want to get a better understanding of those verses. Hosea was a prophet of God called to marry a woman of prostitution named Gomer, and he had three children with her. One was called Jezreel, harkens back to some sin that happened in Jezreel. It was a heinous thing. And then the next two children were called No, no Compassion, Lo Ruama, or, and the third was called Not My People, Lo Amani. And God actually says to the children of Israel, as Hosea lives out this life as a picture of God's love for his people, He says, You who are not my people are not going to be called my people. And you who didn't receive mercy from me are going to have re- mercy from me. That's exactly what Peter's saying to these believers. Just like God and his mercy and grace towards the rebellious children of Israel, look at what God has done for you. He's shown you mercy when you didn't deserve it. You're now his people when you weren't his people before because of Jesus Christ. I'm going to state two things for us to think about as we are done here. Number one, as believers alienated and suffering exclusion from those around us, loving community among the saints is essential are we going to crave the spiritual milk so that we are putting away these sinful things in our lives so that we are pursuing constant love for each other building a loving christian community that we all depend on and need in the day and age in which we live this is a place where being canceled shouldn't happen should be welcoming people and loving people encouraging people building other one another up not accepting sin in each other's lives but calling it out and loving each other as we do it number two our community, christian community is built on the cornerstone jesus christ who has set us apart as his special people are we living lives set apart for god If people are evaluating us and just watching us, the way that we work in our jobs, the way that we interact in our neighborhoods, the way that we parent our children or grandparent our grandkids or whatever, do people say, you know what? They call themselves a Christian. You know what? They sure live like them. They're different. There's something about their walk and their faith. I want to know more about that. Are we the ambassadors for Christ that God's calling us to? I trust that we are. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, please don't reject Him. My prayer is that He doesn't become a stumbling block to you, but He becomes your cornerstone as you put your faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior.